Good morning. Glad you're here today. We welcome all of our campuses. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we read and look at his word today. Father, we thank you that you're a God who loves us. We've been singing about you at all of our campuses. We've, you've given us this gift of being able to reach down into our, our soul and sing forth the truths of who you are and how you respond to each one of us, who we are and our need for you. And we pray, Father, that you would be with us today as we look at your word. Give us a confidence that your word is true and help us be those who dive into it and help us be those, Lord, who hear from you on a daily basis. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the time in a little bit when we'll be reminded of his death on the cross for us and what he did for us. And we thank you, Father, for the prayer that he left all those who follow him. And we want to pray that prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So we're taking some time as we start this new year to make sure we are on the same page and we're moving forward together. Last time we met, I went over our philosophy of ministry, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and three major goals that we will be attacking over the next few years. Those goals are on your sermon notes. The link to that sermon is there. If you weren't here, I encourage you uh, to listen so we can all be in lockstep together as we move forward. We're going to spend the next five weeks going over the core values of the Bible Chapel. We'll be doing that in some different ways. The core values of the Bible Chapel are familiar to many of you. It's what we have been calling five essentials. We still call it that. And we believe that these core values, these five essentials, are critical to who we are, are essential to who we are as a church, and they're essential to a person growing in their walk with Jesus Christ. The five essentials are these. They're on the screen and they're on your notes. Word, worship, connect, serve, share. We believe that a growing believer is going to be in the Word, going to be worshiping the Lord with their lives, going to be connected with another believer some way or some fashion. You can't live the Christian life alone. Going to be using their gifts, going to be sharing the message of Christ. We'll be talking about that again in different ways over the next few weeks. We want to start today with the Word, the Word of God, the first essential, our core value. Now, just about every week in some form or fashion at all of our campuses, you're going to be challenged to read God's Word. If you need a jump start or you'd just like to get started, we have daily devotions that go out every day. You can sign up for those. The information's on the website. We have things in the bulletin as well. You can sign up for those, and you can start your day in God's Word. We challenge you to do that. The ba- our, 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 our chapel verse uh, since 1964, uh, when we were founded, is John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your Word. Your Word is truth. What we want to do today is just take a step back. Let's just all take a step back. Why is reading God's Word so important? Is it important? How do we know that it's true? We say, sanctify them in your Word, your Word is truth. How do we know God's Word is true? 
How do we know it's not just a collection of books, thoughts, opinions that have been written by man? How do we know it's not just some, some stories, some great stories, that we can draw some principles from? Now, I think we'd all agree, if God's Word is not true, we might as well close our doors, sleep in, which a lot of people did today, by the way, sleep in, have a cup of coffee, do brunch, and then watch the Chargers beat up on the Patriots, right? That would be just a good day. We might as well do that. If God's Word's not true, there's no reason for us to waste our time being here. But if it is true, if God's Word is true, then we shouldn't be able to get enough of it. We shouldn't want to miss a day of hearing from God. What does He want us to know? What does He want us to learn? So today what I want to do is to go through five principles to show you why we believe the Bible to be true. I'm just going to start a conversation. No way in 36 minutes and 35 seconds counting down that we can go over an exhaustive apologetic of the Word of God. So it's a conversation starter. If you have questions, sincere questions, after this sermon, email Maria Stockman, mstockman at biblechapel.org, and we will, in blogs or podcasts, put out the information because we want to make sure you know in the depths of your heart this book I'm picking up to read, it is the Word of God, and I'm fully convinced of that. I have no doubts about it. And by the way, you better make sure your kids know that because when they go off to college, one of the first things, if they're at a secular college, some professor's going to tell them is this is just a bunch of legend, and if you take it serious, you are not intellectual at all. They're going to hear that. So you better make sure, if you're a teenager here, you got this nailed down. Parents, you better make sure you got it nailed down for your kids, and you got it nailed down for your grandkids. Okay, five principles, why we believe the Bible to be true. Let's start internally. The first one is the claims the Bible makes about itself. So let's start there. What claims does the Bible make about itself? Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Knowing, first of all, Peter says, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Well, wait a minute. Peter just said there is nothing in Scripture that is just from man. It doesn't come from man's opinion. It doesn't come from man's interpretation. It's a pretty, pretty bold claim, isn't it? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This is not about some person deciding they want to write something. But in contrast to that, men spoke from God, and that's interesting, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The writing of Scripture, the writers speaking from God as they're carried along. That carried along word is a great word. Think of a sailboat with the big sail up and the wind in the sail carrying the sailboat along. That's the word. Men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
It's a pretty significant claim, isn't it? This is an opinion of man, the Bible says. It's not opinion of man, but God himself carried these individuals along, using their, using their backgrounds, using their style of writing, using their training, but he carried them along. Here's another one, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, not some, not most of it, not the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Great Hebrew or great Greek word that means God breathed. God spoke these words. God, through His Holy Spirit, breathed, breathed them out through these writers. Again, different styles, different backgrounds, different training. And it is God breathed, so it's profitable for teaching, it's our doctrine, it's what we believe, it's what we know to be true, for reproof, when we, when we start heading off on a detour, it says don't go that way, for correction, how do you get back on the right road, the Bible tells us that, and for training, that's pretty significant stuff, isn't it? God's Word, God breathed, tells us everything we need for life and living so that, here's the reason, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, equipped for everything that God has given us to do. One more passage here. 2 Peter chapter 15 and 16. So Peter, an apostle, walked with Christ, is writing, and he's saying, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul did. Now, Paul, remember, wasn't one of the original apostles, only became an apostle when Jesus interrupted his life on the road to Damascus as he was going to persecute Christians, Acts chapter 9. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the, oh, the wisdom given him, it wasn't just his wisdom, but it was given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in these matters. I love this next part, uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, 16. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Peter's saying, man, I'm just a fisherman. Paul was a lawyer. And sometimes when I read his stuff, it's hard for me to understand everything. And because sometimes you really have to study it and compare different parts, some people, Peter says, they take that the ignorant and unstable, and they twist it to their own destruction. They twist it to heresy. Check this out. Here's the most important part of this verse. As they do with other scriptures. What, what, what did Peter just do? He said, Paul's letters are on the same level, the same par as other scriptures. He just said, Paul's letters are the word of God. The claims that Scripture makes about itself. Now, does that prove the Bible is true? The claims that Scripture makes about what does that prove? Well, nothing. But it's a conversation starter, right? Because this book says I'm a big deal. This book says I'm the Word of God. This book says read me. And you will learn everything you need to know about God, about life, about salvation, about yourself, and about eternity. The Bible says I'm a big deal. So that's where the conversation starts. Now, if it says I'm a big deal, then we got to make sure we believe it to be true. And again, if we believe it, there should be nothing that keeps us away from digging into it in a significant way every day. 
So let's look at the second part. We've got the claims. Now let's look at the construction, or another word would be continuity of Scripture. The Bible is not like one book, like the Harry Potter series, right? How many Harry Potter series? Like a thousand of those things? Or seven or eight? I don't know how many there are, but it's not like one book in a different series. The Bible is 66 separate books. In fact, the word Bible comes from the Latin Biblio Sacra, sacra holy books. Holy books. Books set apart. Holy books. Not just one. The word Bible in and of itself is plural. Holy books. Now think about this. The Bible was written over 1,500 years from the time Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books, to John wrote Revelation in 90 or so A.D. 1,500 years. 40 different authors coming from all walks of life. Moses was trained in the best university of the world of that day, in the universities of Egypt. Joshua was a military leader. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a hated tax collector. Luke was a doctor. Paul was a Pharisee, written by all these different guys. Different people, different backgrounds, written in different places. Jeremiah wrote from a dungeon. Paul wrote from a, from a prison. Luke wrote while traveling. Daniel wrote from a palace. Written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Written in three different languages. You got the Hebrew of the Old Testament, you got Aramaic, the common language of the day, and then the international language, Greek. Think about that. 40 different authors, 1,500 years. They can't confer with each other. 1,500 years, different continents, different backgrounds, and yet, throughout Scripture, there's one message from God. What is it? I love you so much that I'm sending my son Jesus Christ to die for you on the cross. The redemption plan of God is found threaded throughout the Bible. Wherever you are in Scripture, Jesus is always, he is always the center point. If you're in the Old Testament, you're looking forward to Jesus. The prophecies, over 300 of prophecies just about Jesus. We'll look at those in a second. He's coming. Get ready. Here's what it's going to look like. He's coming. And in the New Testament, he came. Serve him. Let's learn about him. Let's follow hard after him. The center of the Bible is all, all center of all these books, 66 books, is always Jesus. By the way, these books were not written by choir, bo choir boys. David was a king who had some bad stretches. Let's think of adultery, murder, and pride to name just three. Jonah... He, he ran from God when God wanted him to go to Nineveh, this wicked group, uh, place, and tell them about the grace of God. He said, I'm not going to go there. They don't deserve your grace. He finally went there. God intervened, and a lot of the Ninevites were saved. And Jonah was so mad that they were saved, he went and hid under a tree, and God, just kill me. Remember that? Matthew, he's a hated tax collector. He sold out to the Roman government and he overtaxed the Jews, pocketed the excess. He became rich. They hated him. Paul spent most of his life, the early part of his life, trying to persecute Christians. He wanted to kill them. He wanted to put them in prison. He was on his way to do that when God interrupted his life. 
And let's two more writers. What about James and Jude? They were the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers. They didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah. You remember? They mocked him. They said, hey, if you're, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go to Jerusalem and do some miracles? That'd be a cool thing to do. They were laughing at him until what? The resurrection. Now, that changed some things. And God intervened in their life. And God changed them. And he used them to write the holy words of God, moved along by the Holy Spirit. So think about that. We've got internal claims. This book says, I'm a big deal. I'm the Word of God. You better take me seriously. And then you have this continuity throughout, wherever you are, Jesus Christ is the center point of Scripture. Number three, the preservation of Scripture. The preservation. Okay, so here's, what, here's the deal, right? Uh, in Acts, got the church starting, and Peter preaches a, a sermon in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people come to Christ. They had come from all over the world uh, to, to, for the Pentecost, Passover and Pentecost. Preaches a sermon. They come to Christ. They go back to their hometown, and they're telling others about Christ. So churches, assemblies, gathering of believers start in all these places, just like here at the Bible Chapel. Um, then Paul becomes a Christian after Acts 9, and he goes and he starts all these churches around them, three missionary journeys. He goes and starts these churches. He writes letters back to the churches. There are four guys, the gospel writers, and they say there are some things written about Jesus, but we want to make sure, we want to make absolutely positive that everyone has a complete story of Jesus. So, the gospel writers started writing the complete story of Jesus. Matthew said, I want to make certain the Jews know that Jesus is the Messiah. And so that was his target audience, the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. Mark was not an apostle, but traveled a lot with Peter. And a lot of Mark's gospel is from Peter. And Mark is saying, I want to make sure all those in Rome who are getting ready to go through persecution, and when they die, they're dying because they know who Jesus is. Luke, he's a doctor, he's a researcher, and he writes to this guy Theophilus, and he says, I have researched this thoroughly. So Luke went and talked to Mary and said, hey, tell me about what happened that night. The angels, they came. What was it like when Jesus was born? And so he records that. He's a researcher. That's Luke. And he's really writing to the Gentiles. Theophilus is a Greek name. He's writing to the Gentiles. And then you got John. He says, man, I was with Jesus just about the whole time. I got so many stories about Jesus, I can't tell them all. If I told them, they'd fill the whole libraries of all the world. But I'm going to pick these specific stories so that the reader can know that Jesus is the Christ, they can believe in his name, and they can have eternal life. That's the reason. That's why I'm putting these stories in there. And then you got Paul, again, writing to the churches. So what's going to happen? So, so Paul writes a letter to, to us here in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, right? Or Robinson or Wilkinsburg or Ross Traver or Washington or DeBerry. And someone in Pittsburgh says, hey, you guys got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Can we get a copy of that? And said, sure, we want to share it. And so we copy that letter. It's God's word. We believe it to be true. We're serious about it. We don't miss a letter. We it's no printing presses, right? We copy it. 
and we send it to church down in Pittsburgh. And then someone out in Monroeville says, wait a second, you guys got a letter from Paul? We'd like a copy of that. And another, so you have copies going all over the world. Copies on copies. Now, so many copies that at some point, there are people who have a profession of just copying. They're called scribes. They are professional. They're like, they're like human copying machines before the printing press. Now you've got all these letters spread throughout the world. What were they written on? Well, they were written on papyrus. That's from the papyrus plant. They're written on parchment. That's the skin of a goat or a sheep or an antelope or another animal. And then some of, it, some of them were written, these letters were written on uh, what's called vellum, and that was the skin of a calf. Now guess what? That stuff doesn't last. And so how many original letters do we have from written, we know, that was written by the pen of the Apostle Paul? How many? Zero. They don't, no originals. But surely we have some of the Gospels, right? We know Matthew wrote this. How many original, original Gospels? Zero. We have copies of copies of copies painstakingly copied throughout the years, making certain that every word was true. In fact, the scribes, they wrote on parchment a lot of times, and they would write. Sometimes they wrote in uh, all caps, no spaces between the words. Sometimes they wrote in small, no spaces between the words. And they would write, and when they got to the end of the page, from what they were copying from that had been copied, that had been preserved all these years, they would go count down and count across, and they would make sure that right in the middle was the letter H or whatever it was. And if the letter H wasn't there, you know what they did? They tore it up, and they started all over again. They made certain that these copies were correct and were passed down in a way that preserved them. Okay, so that concerns some of you because we don't have any original copies. So let's think about it this way. Let's look at some ancient books and let's look at three things. When were they written? What's the first copy we have of that book? How long was it between the first copy or the original and the first copy, right? So we would assume the longer it was, the more errors there would be. And then how many copies do we have? So you, you have this in your notes. So I'll go through these quickly because of time. You can see Caesar, 100 uh, uh, B.C. Caesar's Wives is the name of the book. 140, uh, 100 to 44 B.C. Earliest copy is 980. So the earliest copy, not the original, but the earliest copy we have is 900 A.D. The time span then between the original and the first copy is 1,000 years. And there are 10 copies, just 10 copies of it. Plato, uh, one of Plato's books, four, uh, 427 to 347 B.C. Earliest copy we have is, was written in 900 A.D., 1,200 years after the original, and we have seven of those. You can see Aristotle. I'll let you read that on your own. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament, let's just think of the New Testament written between the A.D. 40 and A.D. 100. The earliest copy we have is A.D. 125. 
So that's a 25-year time span. There's no other book like that. And by the way, how many copies of the whole Bible or portions of Scripture do you think we have? Smaller group today, so just tell me. What do you think here in the South Hills? Give me an idea. Hundred? Thousand? Thousand? How about this? 24,633. 24,633. Why that many? Because people through history knew this is a book you got to copy. This is a book you got to keep. This is a book you got to read. It's got to be right, and we have to make sure everyone reads this thing. 24,000 copies. You say, you set us up. You picked some really low books of history just to set us up. Okay, fine. You don't trust me. I get it. I get it. Let's look at the number two book. So we got the New Testament. That's the most copies. What's the second book with the most copies? Homer's Iliad. Anyone ever heard of that? Homer's Iliad. Written 900 B.C. Earliest copy, 400 B.C. Time span between it was written and earliest copy, 500 years. Now, this is the number two book next to the New Testament. How many copies? 643. 643. So, the, so the New Testament, 24,000 more copies than the second most book of antiquity. And again, why? Because people said, we got to have this. This is God's word. This has changed my life. In 303, when Diocletian said, we're going to burn every book of the Bible, some people said, you're not burning mine. I'll hide my Bible. You can burn me. Because it's too important for my children and children after them to know this is God's word. Burn me at the stake. I don't care, but I'll hide my Bible because I will not lose God's word. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and so the kind of the religious center of Judaism moved to a place called Jamnia. The, the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious leaders said, well, we don't have the temple anymore, so we don't have the scrolls there. We want to make sure everyone knows that those 39 books in our scrolls are the books that we believe in. No more. Not the Apocrypha. That came back in 1500s. We're talking now in uh, 90 AD. And in 90 AD, at the Council of Jamnia, they said these 39 books are the Hebrew Old Testament. No more. There's a lot of discussion why the Apocrypha was added to the Roman Catholic Bible in the 1500s. It was after the Reformation. A lot of discussion. That's another, another story. That happened in 90 AD. In uh, 313 AD, Constantine uh, conquered the world, and he said, Christianity is great. Let's have Christianity as a state religion. Now, that had some problems of its own, but it allowed for the first time for people to meet together and deal with heresies out in the open. And they said in 397 AD at the Council of Carthage, these are the 27 books of the New Testament. No more. 
And so 27 and 39, here are the books. Here is our Bible. And they use criteria. I'll just give you a few. It's got to be written by an apostle. If it's not written by an apostle, no. It's, or it's got to be written by someone who uh, had access or traveled with an apostle. And so you have Luke who traveled with Paul. You have, you have uh, uh, Mark who traveled with Paul and Peter. Or, or and, not or, and truthfulness. We know this book to be true. If here's a, if here's a book written over here and it doesn't have the same truthfulness, it doesn't, doesn't fit. Faithfulness to previously accepted writings. We know Paul wrote this. It's copied down. It's only been now, it's 300, so it's only been a few years. If that book doesn't coincide with what we know, it doesn't fit. And on and on and on they went using criteria to make certain that the 66 books we have are the books of the Bible. All right, so let's think about this. Here we are. And we got 24,633 copies of Scripture, full copies or parts of Scripture, okay? Everybody understand that. Not 24,000 Bibles, but some of them are Bibles, and are full Bibles, and some of them are parts of it. And as men, scribes, started putting together the Bible itself in about 200 A.D. That goes back, British Museum has two Bibles about 200 A.D. They saw some differences in the fragments. They saw some differences. A guy named Dan Wallace, who is a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, now he, he's the founder and uh, executive director of a place called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. He says that those 20 4,000 manuscripts, all the differences, 99.5 of them, he didn't make that up, he figured that out, 99.5 of the differences fall into two categories. One, a spelling difference. So a scribe's writing, and instead of putting one L on Paul, he puts two L's on Paul. We still know it's Paul. It doesn't change our doctrine whatsoever. But it's a difference. It counts as a difference. Big deal, right? Counts as a difference. Or the use of the article the in the Greek language. And so on some manuscripts, it will say, the John loved Jesus. Or on another manuscript, it'll say, John loved Jesus. Now, in English, you wouldn't even translate the anyway from the Greek language. But that's counted as a difference. Big deal, right? It changes the whole meaning, right? The John loved Jesus or John loved Jesus? Not at all. Not at all. Changes doctrine, not one iota. 99.5%. We say, well, I don't care if it's 98.9. What about that 0.5? Okay? 0.5 is this. The 0.5 are places in Scripture that are not spelling and not the article, but where a, a known manuscript, a trusted manuscript, and another trusted manuscript might say something a little different. It never, ever contradicts doctrine. It never puts our faith in jeopardy. 
There's not like one passage that says Jesus is the, um, uh, he was married. Jesus was married and had a bunch of wives. None of them say that. It's not anything that would be shaking of our faith. Let me show you what some of these things are. If you have the ESV uh, version, the ESV said, we're going to, we're going to, our readers, we're going to tell you every, every 0.5 difference. So you know the validity of scripture. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And there's a footnote there, and you go down, and it says, some manuscripts say, your joy. So you have some manuscripts saying, and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And some say, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The difference in the Greek between the your and the our, uh, four letters, both of them, two are the same and two are similar. So a scribe could have done. Now, what difference does that make in our theology? Nothing. Nothing. I'll give you another one. John chapter uh, 2, verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. So the ESV translators say, we want, to, we want you to know everything you need to know. Some manuscripts say, you know everything. That's the difference. But it doesn't change anything does it? You have all knowledge or you know everything. And you go on and on and on. That's the point five difference. Not a one does anything with doctrine. Not a one changes anything about what we believe in the New Testament. It's amazing the, pers the, the, the preservation. Now, why would that take place? Because God's in charge of that. He's the one. He's the mover and the shaker behind the preservation of the Bible that's tried to be stamped out over and over again in history, but it can't be stamped out because it's the living word of God. Number four, for me, this is a kicker. In the Old Testament, there are 300, over 300 prophecies that have been fulfilled just about Jesus. 300 prophecies that have been fulfilled, over 300, depending on what list you read. I read, I read one list like 368 prophecies just about Jesus that have been fulfilled. Now, how would you do that, humanly speaking? So you'd, it'd be easy, right? You'd do something like this. You'd say, well, in, Ma in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it said Jesus is going to be born in where? Not a trick question. Jesus was born in... Bethlehem. Micah said that 700 years before Jesus was born. But we got a problem. Mary is pregnant, virgin birth, and her guy she's engaged to is Joseph, and they live in where? Nazareth. But Joseph is from Bethlehem. So all you, all you would have to do to manipulate this, humanly speaking, it'd be easy, right? You just go to Caesar Augustus. And you tell him, hey, this king's going to be born. It's a virgin birth and all that, but we won't get into that, Caesar. But what we need you to do is we need to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem because we're manipulating all the prophecies. And so Caesar, Augustus, all we need you to do is just to put out a decree 
that his senses should be taken so we can get Joseph back to Bethlehem. What do you think Caesar would say? Yeah. Oh, but God orchestrated that, didn't he? Just the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the whole world should be taxed, and that's why Joseph and Mary went back to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Three hundred of those. Let me give you a couple. Man, i got to hurry. Give you a couple. Psalm 22. This is the psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You think the Roman soldiers read that and said, oh, let's make sure and cast lots for his garment to make sure that prophecy a thousand years before comes to fulfillment. By the way, that was written a thousand years before the crucifixion. And here's even, it gets even better. It was written 300 years before the first crucifixion took place. Crucifixion wasn't even known at that time. And they're talking about piercing my hands and my feet, count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Amazing. God's in charge of all this. Let me tell you another. This is, I love this one. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 18, 19. I've got to go this quick. And you, Zebulun. Zebulun was a tribe, one of the 12 tribes, and Zebulun is located in the northwestern part of Israel. And here's the prophecy about Zebulun. So this isn't one about Christ. This isn't one of the 300 I was talking about. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call people to the mountains. There they shall offer right sacrifices. Check this out. For they draw from the abundance of the seas and hidden treasures of the land. And for 3,400 years, people said, what does that mean? They draw from the abundance of the seas and the treasures of the sand. What does that mean? In 1933, the prime minister, British high commissioner, established the port of Hoffa, and you know where Hoffa is? Ooh, just happens to be in that same place where Zebulun is. Today, there's the port of Hoffa. It is the leading port of Israel's three main international seaports. And it was just in the news again. So now you can see they draw from the abundance of the seas and the treasures of the 3,400 years later, 1933, the prophecy is fulfilled. It's just in the news, uh, the Jerusalem Post had this article about um, uh, China wants to, wants to uh, uh, invest about $2 billion in that, and the United States says, we don't want China involved in it, and now Israel is going back and forth between the United States and China to determine what they're going to do. In the news today, the port of Hoffa. Dr. Peter Stoner uh, was a mathematician, and he was a professor uh, in, at Pasadena College and then at Westmont, and he said the chances... Forget 300. The chances of eight prophecies from the Old Testament being fulfilled in the just let's just work with eight is 10. He did all the math 10 to the 17th power or one in 100 quadrillion. So, not a number we use a lot, is it? 
one in 100 quadrillion. So it would be like this. He said, let's say, here's what you do. Take quarters and go to the state of Texas, one of our biggest land areas. Stack the quarters a foot and a half deep. Foot and a half deep. Mark one quarter with an X. Put it in there someplace. Foot and a half deep all over Texas with one quarter marked with an X. Then blindfold someone, drop them off, and have them find the marked quarter. One in 100 quadrillion chance that's going to happen. It's impossible, isn't it? Unless this is God's book and God's the one calling the shots and God's the one making it happen. That's why we believe the Bible to be true. One more. Experience. Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone know from personal experience, don't we, that when you read God's Word, this Word moved along by the Holy Spirit, when you read God's Word, you are convicted. When you read God's Word, you are encouraged. When you read God's Word, you know which way to go. And if you're a believer and you read God's Word, you know from personal experience. There are tons of, there are many people, Josh McDowell being one who said he set out to, for the Bible to prove the Bible was just a book of nonsense, and he now is one of the leading apologists for the Bible. Evidence that demands a verdict, two volumes if you want to read through that. We know it's true. I stood right here on Friday. A funeral casket was right here. Nancy Ross. Nancy was a member of our church. Loved scripture. And it was, it was uh, cool. She wrote out what she wanted to happen in her, uh, in her service. And uh, she said, I don't want any long, boring eulogy. If, you're, if someone's there, they already know me. I want a concert. I want some songs. And she listed out all the, and I want a full band. Forget just the piano or the guitar. I want a full band. And so on Friday, we had a full band up here, all the songs that, that uh, Nancy wanted to sing. And I sat right here. I couldn't get through the songs because I started quivering. This is for real. She's passed from death to life. Those songs up there based on the Word of God, man, that was what she went through. And God is a God who can be trusted even in the most difficult times personal experience. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon says. If you've not read C.H. Spurgeon, you need to. He, re- he lived in a, ministered in, the, in the, like the 1860s, before and after, and, and he had this big church in London, and his writings are still today. People quote him like he's living. Listen to what, I love what he says. There seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition of it and the spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to what? (laughs) Defend itself. 
Many suggestions are made and much advice is offered. This weapon is recommended or the other. Pardon me if I make a quiet suggestion, Spurgeon, Spurgeon says. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why? They're all gone. He no sooner goes forth in his strength than his assailants flee. Listen to what he says. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is what? The Bible. Let the lion out. Just let the lion out. On Wednesday nights, we have opportunities to, to study God's Word. Men's group, great group going on. Women's group, great gr group going on. And in here, Brad Ryan is teaching a class how to study the Bible for yourself on your own. And if that is what you'd like to do, not a regurgitated podcast or a sermon from somebody else, God's Word spoken to me. I want to study God's Word on my own then we're offering that opportunity 